You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Good to be with you guys always. My name is Ryan, but uh, nickname I've had forever is Riz, and so you can just call me by that. Uh, and uh, my wife, my wonderful wife, was up here playing piano and singing today, Zoe. Uh, I think she's actually worshiping um, at the kids right now doing worship. But uh, that's my wife. And then we have two kids, Liam, which is two years old, and Eva, which is five. They're over in the kids' church with a lot of your guys' kids. But we moved over about a year and a half ago because we felt led to um, start Reality Honolulu. And so we got sent out by um, the Reality family of churches. If you don't know anything about Reality, it started in this little town um, just south of Santa Barbara, California, called Carpinteria. Little beach town. Yeah, amen. Carp Um, (laughs) in the house. And uh, man, God just, that was about 15 years ago now, and God's just... um, called us to plant more churches, never was something that we planned to do. God just did it. And so I kind of grew up going to that church and came on staff about 12 years ago doing youth ministry with TJ. Um, And kind of the rest is history. You know, when you follow Jesus and you say yes to Jesus, he does some pretty crazy things, some pretty amazing things for his kingdom. And so I was involved with church planning for a long time. And then ultimately God said, hey, you're you should go, and you need to go, and I'm calling you to um, start a church in Honolulu. And so we said yes, and we're here, and it's been amazing. As TJ said, we're at church nine months today of Sunday meetings, and God's just done exceedingly abundantly above all we can hope, ask, or imagine, and uh, he is so not done. And we're so humbled and honored to be a part of what he's already been doing on this island for a long time and to partner with other churches and to see God's kingdom go forth. And so we're excited that you're here and a part of that and uh, looking forward to what God has. But without further ado, um, let's get into the word of God. So today we are in Mark chapter 11. So Mark chapter 11 verses 1 through 25 is our text today. And uh, we've been going systematically through the book of Mark from the very first Sunday nine months ago. And so we take it slow and kind of go verse by verse and just take our time digging in to God's word. As Mark is kind of coming to a close, actually, you know, chapter 16 is the end of it. It kind of does speed up a little bit. Uh, There's more narratives. And so even today we're doing 25 verses. And in the next few weeks, we may even bite off a a full chapter. Who knows? That might be the first time in reality history we do that. But... um, We are tackling verses 1 through 25 today, and uh, I'm just going to read 1 through 11 and then pray, and we'll pick up the rest of it later on. But uh, Mark 11, verse 1 through 11 says this. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one else has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing? Untie the colt, they said. Uh, that Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. 
Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the kingdom, the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in highest heaven. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around into the temple, excuse me, after looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with his 12 disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you desire to speak to us through it, and we ask that you would do so. We're here because we want to hear from you. We want, to, we want to learn of who you are, Jesus, and how that applies to our life. And so, God, we want to say that this time is yours. Help us to be free of distractions, free of the things that are on our phone right now and our to-do list and the stuff we got to do later today or the problems that are in our life. We surrender those at your feet and we just give you this time and say, God, speak to us. Speak to us. Your word is living and active and it's profitable and for edifying and teaching and correcting and training us in righteousness. And so, God, do that this morning. We give you this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you were in Israel at this time of our story right now, and if you were even the slightest of practicing Jews, you would either be in Jerusalem or on your way to Jerusalem at this time. So in our story this morning, as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, he wouldn't have been the only one there. See, the time was Passover, Passover was one of the, the most celebrated holidays for the Jew. And Passover is when Jews remembered when God passed over and spared the Israelites. And we see this in Exodus chapter 12. And so Passover is remembering the story that happened to their ancestors, to the Israelites in Egypt in Exodus 12. And what happened there is obviously the plagues were going on, right? Moses, called by God, went to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh was not letting them go, and God sent a series of plagues. And the 10th plague, um, the final plague, was sent upon Egypt, and this would ultimately free the Israelites from centuries of slavery. And this last plague in Exodus chapter 12 was one that... that Unless you had the blood of a pure, spotless lamb sprinkled across your doorpost, the Lord would not spare you. And so the Israelites, God's people, who obey God, who knew God, if they did this, if they sacrificed the pure, spotless lamb, and if they put the blood above their doorpost, I know it's kind of weird here, but if they did that, God saved them and spared them. And everybody that did so was freed from slavery. And you guys know the story and you've seen the movie, right? The Red Sea parted and the Israelites are free from the hand of Pharaoh. And so Passover is remembering the story of when God literally passed over the homes and he spared the Israelites. And the idea of Passover is remembering of, this, of a lamb that was slain and its blood that was spilt in sacrifice to be saved. 
So these Jews at the time in Israel, they're, 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 pilgriming, they're pilgriming to Israel, to Jerusalem at that time from all over Israel, near and far. They're traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And even today, even practicing Jews today, celebrate Passover. And the purpose is to not forget what God did for their ancestors in Israel and how, they freed, uh, how God freed them from decades, centuries of slavery. But Jerusalem, you know, is the center of Judaism. It's where the temple was. It's the epicenter of all things Jewish. And during Passover week, the greatest holidays of Judaism, people would come from all over, many from Galilee, many from northern Israel where Jesus had spent years right now in public ministry, they came and they came with lambs. And Jewish law required that the Passover lamb live with your family for at least three days just to examine the lamb, to see if it was perfect, to see if it had a blemish, to see if there's anything wrong with it. And once you had the pure, spotless lamb, you would bring that lamb with you to Jerusalem, to the temple, to sacrifice it before God to remember what he did for you. So this is crazy I mean, country, nationwide thing that's happening. And some historians say that at times during Passover week, there was a quarter million people that would, that would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. That's a lot of lambs. Like, because every family would have some. And so there's maybe hundreds of thousands of lambs being led into Jerusalem, symbolic of what God had done many years before. And they brought these lambs to the temple. And the temple was the place that God set up for his people to meet with them. Right? If you know the Exodus story, after the Israelites were freed from Egypt from Pharaoh and crossed the Red Sea, one of the first things that God did was he gave instructions for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was like a mobile church, like a mobile temple, kind of like what we do here on Sunday mornings. Set up and tear down, and whenever God tells us to go, we go. And so the tabernacle was a place for God's people to commune with, to meet with, to remember who God was. And then the tabernacle, um, once they got a permanent place in Jerusalem, became the temple. And it was ornate, and it was wonderful, and it echoed, and it displayed all of God's glory. The tabernacle and the temple, the temple being the place where all these Jews were going at the time of Passover, was the epicenter of the place to meet, worship, encounter God. So what happens today, in light of you understanding what's happening when Jesus comes on the scene, is pretty incredible. See, up to this point, Jesus didn't want to be seen, right? We, we hear a lot of miracles, we see it, we've seen it in the book of Mark. Jesus does some pretty miraculous things, and he tells like his followers and his disciples, or even the people that... We're just miraculously healed. Don't tell anyone about this. Don't say it. Don't tell people who I am yet because it wasn't the proper time. And so up to this point, Jesus has actually said, like, don't, don't tell anybody about me. But now is the time. Now is the time for the whole world to see and understand who Jesus is. 
And that's why what we see here in Mark, as well as every other gospel account, is called Jesus' triumphal entry. It's the entry of the Son of God, the Messiah, into Jerusalem, being recognized as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah, the one that would come to save us. And so remember, this city is filled with people bustling with people. And so Jesus entering at this time would have drew the attention of the rulers and the priests and the elders and the teachers of the law, Greeks, Romans, everyone would see this. And in front of the multitudes, in front of the multitudes that have traveled to seek God and bring their sacrifices to him, the whole world would see Jesus as the son of God, the the Messiah. In light of that, you If you don't know the story or the significance, you may be kind of weirded out that Jesus comes in on a donkey, right? I set the scene. It's like thousands of years of prophecy are being fulfilled. I mean, the son of God, right? Jesus Christ is coming. He's finally getting announced. What should we have him sit on? A donkey. You're like, no, not what I had in mind. This donkey, and I mean, the whole story is funny how much about the donkey, you know, it's like, go ask about the donkey. If they ask you, this is what the donkey's for. And there wasn't even like a saddle for the donkey. They had to throw their coats on it. I mean, it's so um, mind-boggling. But even for the disciples, the crowds, they, they weren't getting it. They didn't understand. They weren't getting it. You know, right? Because everyone was thinking, well, I, I know the Messiah. The Messiah... The promised one that we've been waiting for for centuries, isn't it supposed to, isn't that person, the Messiah, supposed to overthrow Rome? Because at the time, right, Israel is occupied by the Roman Empire, by its oppressors, and the Messiah was going to come and free Israel, free them from Rome. And so, shouldn't the Messiah come on like a war horse or something? I mean, and have an army? I mean, that's how we're going to overthrow Rome. We're not going to do it with a donkey. But their scope was so limited of the Messiah. It was so limited. This was so odd to them and maybe odd to us. But that wasn't the point or the way. See, Jesus, in true Jesus form, came humbly into the world, and he would go humbly out of it. See, he wasn't there to overthrow Rome and rule and reign in Jerusalem. He came to save all of humanity, Israel included, from their sins. And he wouldn't just overthrow Rome and sit on throne. He would go to a cross, and he would die on a cross, but then he would rule and reign from heaven next to God on the throne. Right? Their, their scope was so limited of what they thought Jesus the Messiah was to do. But he came humbly. He was going to exit humbly. And so he came riding on a lowly donkey. In true Jesus form, humbly. Not, not with force, but with love. Not with control, but with Humility. And even think about it, like in the crowds, you think like a procession of a king would be on a tall horse so that everyone could see him. But a donkey, you're kind of at eye level. You're kind of lower. It's hard to even see. Jesus was being announced, but he came in a really humble way. One commentator said this about Jesus. When Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, it was in a borrowed boat. When he rode into the holy city today, it was on a borrowed beast. And when he was buried, it was in a borrowed tomb. 
Jesus came humbly to save the world. And that's exactly what he did. But what he does is he tells the disciples to go get a donkey. The donkey's exactly where he said it was. It works out exactly what they did. He began to ride. He used the saddles of, uh, I mean, the coats for saddles. And he began to ride down the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is just this little valley, little hill that enters into Jerusalem. And people saw Jesus, knew about him. Those that believed began to throw their coats, throw palm fronds in front of Jesus, full red carpet style. And they began to cry out, right? Hosanna, save now. That's what it means. Hosanna means save now. They're crying out. They're proclaiming in front of everybody. Right? There's an uproar. The city is full of energy. Jesus is coming. Yeah, it's on a donkey, but he's here. And let's throw our coats and the palm fronds and the king has come. Save us. It's his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, testifying of his deity. And if you were a Jew in that, in that place, and if you remembered anything about what you learned in synagogue, if you learned anything, if you remembered anything, you would have understood what Jesus was doing on that donkey because you would have remembered prophecy that was spoken about the Messiah long before this that was being fulfilled right before your eyes. See, in Zechariah 9.9, 500 years prior to this moment, it spoke of the Messiah and it says this, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Speaking of Israel, rejoice Israel, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. If you were a Jew in Jerusalem in Passover in this moment and you remembered this prophecy, your jaw would have dropped. You would have said, the king is coming on a donkey. Hosanna, save now. Like, are you seeing this? Are you seeing this? But all of the world wouldn't find out to a few days later because it gets even better. Right, this man Jesus, he was the pure, spotless lamb of God that wouldn't just merely cover sin for a time like these other lambs were going to do, that everyone had in their hands leading to the temple. But this was Jesus Christ, the pure, spotless lamb of God that would die for the sins of the world and take the wages of sin and the penalty of sin away forever. Do you see the significance? There's lambs going. This is the lamb. And wait a second. He's going to die, so we don't have to do this anymore. The whole world would know just in a few days in this moment. But this is the scene that's happening. Hundreds of years of prophetic history is being answered, and Jesus finally is being hailed king. Hosanna, save now. Amazing, right? Let's worship. God's good. Okay. <laughs> so then what happens is uh, Jesus kind of gives a little whooping. So he goes in and he um, gets a little crazy. So here's what happens. Mark 11, 20, 12 through 25, the rest of our text this morning says, The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, <laughs> I love it, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. 
So he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. When he arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, Jesus and his disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God, I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen. Have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you have received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive yours too. So it may seem strange, the two things that Jesus does now, but there is real significance to each one of them. So the action of Jesus overthrowing the money changers and the, and the fig tree are, are actually supposed to illustrate something, a, a deeper spiritual issue. And they're supposed to illustrate what's really going on in the hearts of Israel, specifically these religious leaders. And so him overthrowing the tables and, and the fig tree is, is an illustration for what's going on deeper. And there's two things that are happening. Number one is the temple, right? This, the temple that God had set forth was not being used as it was designed to. And so he fixes that real quick by overthrowing tables. The second is that the actions of Israel and the religious leaders were, were very superficial, but they didn't bear fruit. I'll go into that in a second. But first is, is the temple and what Jesus does in there and how he overturns the money changers' tables. Again, we have to remember to understand why Jesus would do something like this. You have to really grasp what the temple was designed for. It was designed to worship, remember, and commune with God. That's what it was for. You were to stop, reflect, sacrifice. God was the point and he was supposed to be at the center of it. And the design of the temple, how it was laid out, what rooms were in the temple, what, the, the ornateness of it, everything pointed to God. The whole point of it was God. So these money changers, these people, it wasn't so much that they were just selling anything in the temple. Oh, they were just trying to like make money in the temple and you weren't supposed to sell anything in the temple. That's not totally the point. The temple, these money changers were actually like profiteers. And what they were doing is they were actually working in cooperation with the priests. And these pilgrims were coming, right, traveling from afar, and they were forcing them to purchase only approved sacrifices, 
only the lambs and the doves that were approved by us. So this lamb and this dove and these sacrifices that you brought, they're not good enough. So you need to exchange some money or we need to to do a little deal here. Your sacrifices aren't good enough and you need to take mine. Right, totally just twisting everything that God designed the temple to be and trying to make money off it. These people, out of, out of really purity of heart, coming before God to seek him, they're trying to um, profit off it. They were making money dishonestly, and it really, what, what at, at the core of it is these money changers were hindering worship. They, they were hindering God's design of what the temple was supposed to be. And so Jesus is just fed up at this point, and he actually overturns the tables, and he says, this isn't what my house is supposed to be about. Stop hindering worship. My, supposed to, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And what he's saying is, is communion. I want to commune and be with my people. Why are you hindering them? Anytime that anybody's hindered from coming to Jesus and you're the party doing it, God is not stoked on you. If you hinder people from coming to Jesus, God is not stoked on you. And so that is what's happening here is Jesus, in a very abrupt way, is communicating the importance of communing with God, and he's, and he's making a way. He's stopping it. And to allow the word to kind of be relevant to us for a second, right? Because this is 2,000 years ago in Jewish culture in Israel. We need to allow the word to speak to us. And this is what I want to say, me included. We need to be aware of making the things of God, i.e. the church, things in church, We need to be aware of making good things that God has created like the church into things they're not supposed to be. Distorting the church, what the church is supposed to be like, how it's supposed to function. And man, this is a really scary thing starting and leading a church. (laughs) This is really scary and and, and, um, starting a church and leading a church. And this is because... Sadly, this happens a lot. Like, it's really easy to get off track. Why I'm, I'm comparing the temple to the church is that, that that's what it is for us now. We don't have the temple anymore. We have the church, though. God's given us. It's a wonderful thing. But it's really easy to do church even in like the Western culture specifically, in ways that maybe God didn't design for it to be. And so the question that I always have to ask myself, but that we should, because it's not just about me, it's about us, we're the church, is are we gathering, meeting, functioning in a way that God designed it? Or are we missing the point? Have we distorted what the church is supposed to be like? And... It has to be a real, honest assessment frequently because it is really easy, right, to do things that people like or that's popular or that works. And instead of being led by scripture and the word, it's okay, all of a sudden, well, that didn't work out, so we're going to do this, and that didn't work out, so we're going to do this. And I don't mean to bag on other churches. I do not mean to do that because they'll stand before the Lord and we're different. We'll stand before the Lord and churches are different. But that's why here, why we're always uh, like pretty simple and there's not a lot of frills. It's not complicated or showy and 
Um, and that's okay. Like, other people can do that. But our prayer, like, at the core of that, it's not that we, I'm not going to say anything more. It's not that we couldn't do something. <laughs> I'll tell you later what I was going to say. But uh, it's not that we couldn't do different things here on Sunday mornings. But we're desperately trying to make this and keep this about Jesus. Desperately trying to do so. Simple to his word by the power of his spirit in community together because of this very fact that it is so easy to even distort the wonderful things that God has given us. So let's pray together that we uh, continue to do that at the church. But Jesus isn't done there. Then there's this fig tree this morning. So this fig tree, what happens is, is that Jesus saw this tree, and he actually curses this tree, and this, this tree dies. It's kind of weird. But what happened is, is that Jesus is seeing, continually seeing, we have, the religious leader's hypocrisy. What we've seen throughout the book of Mark, and you'll see common in the New Testament, is that Jesus was always confronting the religious hypocrisy of the leaders at the time. Jesus would see their actions, but then know their hearts, or he would see how he was in, in front of certain people, but really knew the wickedness that was in their hearts. And, and over and over, he was confronting religious hypocrisy. He went so far as to call them whitewashed tombs. I don't know if you've ever heard that, if you've seen that in scripture, but relating to the religious leaders of the time, he referred to them as whitewashed tombs, and that's what it means. It means that on the outside, the tombstone's all nice, washed, it's awesome, it's good, but in their hearts, they're dead. They're being hypocrites. They're superficially claiming to be religious, but in their, start, their hearts are far from the Lord. And so in this case of the fig tree... It's a visual representation of Israel's heart. See, the tree had these leaves and it looked good, right? Jesus went over to it. Oh, wow, this is a fig tree. Looks good, but he could not find any fruit. It wasn't bearing any fruit. And Jesus, once again, just abhors and judges the idea of religious hypocrisy. And so this tree being a representation of Israel's heart, it looks good on the outside, but it didn't bear any fruit. There was no depth to it because, the, again, it was superficial and there was no depth to it and it wasn't bearing any fruit. And so he curses the tree. I mean, in a very abrupt, stern way, Jesus, Jesus confronts religious hypocrisy in the form of this fig tree and what he's doing in a very stern, abrupt way is, is showing us that the way to God is not to be phony, fake, superficial, or an outward show of religiosity, but rather a heart that believes and from that heart of faith bears fruit. That's, that's what's happening here. He's using this fig tree as an illustration into, into a window of Israel's heart and he's saying, you may do the right things. You may say the right things and have all the religious practices down pat. And everyone from the outside may think you're religious and good before God. But your hearts are far from me. And your lives are bearing no fruit. And so, in order 
to have the word read us, so to speak, we need to now check our own lives in the area of religious hypocrisy. So, so where are we like these religious leaders? That we're, that we're doing all the right things, checking all the right boxes, going to church the right amount of times. From the outside, everybody in your life goes, oh, you're a good Christian, oh, you're religious, oh, you're good. But inwardly, we're far from the Lord. Because I'll tell you this, there is no greater place that this happens than inside the church. This is, we're really, really, unfortunately good at this. And I will be the first to admit, and I will stereotypically drag all pastors into this also. Every pastor struggles with this, or it's hard for, including me. This is very hard to not be like this. This is why. Whether this is true or not, we feel like we're, we're looked to always be good, always be great, always be the best, always be good with the Lord, always be reading your Bible, always be praying. You're supposed to be leading us. Aren't you supposed to be doing the best? Uh, no, we're human. <laughs> We fail a lot, and uh, no, we're just trying to do this with you. Whether we say we are or not, we're, we are absolutely the same, we struggle with the same things. But as a pastor, I know that personally, I have a tremendous pressure to cave to being fake and hypocritical and, and just performance base. and oh, as long as I look good in front of people, that's all that matters. I have a tremendous, every pastor, every leader in the church, every, everybody does. But I'm going to speak for myself because that's all I know right now. Is there is a tremendous pressure to cave to a hypocritical lifestyle when it comes to us and Jesus, and it's as real as it gets. And the irony is that we see here in the text and elsewhere that there's really nothing that Jesus hates more than religious phoniness. That's what the irony is. Jesus is speaking to me in this text, saying the last thing, the thing that I hate most is for you to be disingenuous and try to be performance-based and to look religious when you're far from me. What Jesus cares about is genuine, authentic, deep heart work. He could care less how I perform. He did the work. I don't have to. Same goes for you and I. We have to take down the facade. Take down the walls. Take down the mask. We have to. The heart of the issue is our own heart. And, because, and out of that comes the fruit of our life. You guys know this, but 1 Samuel 16, 7, God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God saw right through these religious leaders' fake religious performance they were putting on, this, 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 this phoniness. They were seeing their hearts. And what Jesus ends with here is he tells his disciples that pretty much to, to stop trying harder, but to trust more. Right? He ends with this, this idea of have great faith. Believe anything and I'll give it to you, right? There's this whole concept of you ask anything in my name and you believe it, it'll happen. Because they ask, why, why did you curse the fig tree? What's the purpose of this? And he says, have faith. Make it about me, not about your actions. Don't fake it, live it. 
Be messy and be real. Believe and ask. And if you didn't already know this, this is the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that God saves us in our mess. What's a lie is that we got to clean ourselves up before we come to God. That's not how it worked. He came into our mess. He left heaven to earth and he stepped into humanity and all our junk to die to save us. And then daily he sustains us while we're still trying to get out of our junk. The gospel is that Jesus stepped into our sin to take it from us. He is good at getting messy. Your junk and your mess and your stuff and your history and your bondage and all your, every, every story that you have, not a big deal to Jesus. Been there, done that, I'm able, I'm good, not too hard for me, so come to me. That's what he's saying here. Don't, don't, don't just play the game. Come to me. Believe in me. Have great faith. That is the point. I am the point. Don't make it about something else. That doesn't mean that out of our belief in Christ, we don't do religious things like pray and worship and, right, and read the word. But they've got it flip-flopped. They're just before everyone saying, I've got it all together. I'm good. I do all these amazing things, but their heart is far off. What Jesus is saying here is believe in me, come to me in your mess, and because that's why I came. I came to free you from your mess. I want to end with a couple verses from the book of Hebrews, and this is just uh, the author of Hebrews laying out what Jesus came to do. It says this, um, Jesus being the better temple and the better and ultimate sacrifice, Hebrews 9 says, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who, who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set us free from the penalty of sins that we've committed under the first covenant. And just as each person is destined to die once and comes judgment, so also Christ offered once for all time a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly awaiting for him. Guys, the charge today in light of this interaction with Jesus is to come to him. In all our junk, in all our mess, he paid the price for us. We just need to come and surrender and give our lives to him. And so if you've never done that today, I want to invite you into that. I'm not going to invite you up here. You don't have to worry about that. But if you want that, what you say is, Jesus, I, I want you. I don't want to be, I, I want to walk away from my sins. I don't want to live my lifestyle. I want you to forgive me of all that I've done. And I want what you have for me abundant life and eternal life in Christ. That's you, then, then ask that, say that prayer, come to Jesus because that's what our text is saying today. The point of life is to have faith in Christ and to believe him for amazing things, amen? Amen, let's pray. God, thank you that you, you came and you died to save us. And we thank you, Lord, looking even into this 
this account 2,000 years ago in the temple in Israel, and as far away as that may seem, thank you that it is so potent and relevant for our lives here. And that's because we have all sinned and we are all in need of a Savior. And you are that Savior. There is no other name by which we can be saved than the name of Jesus. You're the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through you. But out of your love for us, God, you sent your Son to die, to pay that price so that we could be saved. God, there is much to worship you about today. There is much to rejoice in. And we thank you, Lord, that you meet us where we're at, in our mess, in our junk, in our own hypocrisy, in our own sin, in the ways that we've failed you. You you meet us with loving arms, welcoming us into your kingdom. So, Lord, as a people, I pray that we would be overwhelmed with your love right now and your grace. And that our response to you would be one of surrender. God, take my life. Here it is. I want to be completely yours. I want everything. Help me to stop living for myself in the sin which so easily entangles me. I lay it down at your feet and I want you. I want all that you have. Your way is a better way. So we thank you, Lord, for today. We worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.